Welcome to the Future Cued podcast. I'm Australian food futurist Tony Hunter, and in these podcasts, I talk to leading industry figures about how new food technologies will influence the future of food. Hi, everyone. It's Tony Hunter, Futures of Food here. Today, I have David Zay from Novo Nutrients with me. Hi, David. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you, Tony? I'm good. Well, David, tell us a little about uh, Novo Nutrients. Who are they? So our company, Novo Nutrients, is a, a novel way to make protein to go into the food chain. And I mean, if you think about it, like all the food in the world started as CO2. The CO2 was absorbed into plants, and ultimately that's what makes vegetables, fruits, and and indirectly animals. We just have a faster way of doing it. We take industrial CO2 um, and run it through a microbial bioproduction process to get to protein. So this process that you use, I think it uses, you're saying CO2 and hydrogen are the two major inputs into the process. That's right. It, it's a lot like making wine. In, in wine, you're really using the sugar and the grapes, and that's the source of carbon, and it's the source of chemical energy for the yeast. And for us, we use primarily bacteria. The carbon comes from CO2, and the chemical energy comes from hydrogen. And you don't actually need any sunlight in this process at all, do you? It's actually totally independent of any other energy input. Yeah, we're a strong believer that if you can produce 24-7, that's for the best. Um, and the bacteria we use, the metabolism is really oriented just towards getting the energy they need from hydrogen uh, when they're in that uh, phase. And so we're happy to put things in stainless steel and we don't need to include a window for sunlight. And that CO2, of course, it's very important that you're using CO2 because you can use any waste stream of CO2 that otherwise go into the atmosphere and uh, contribute to global warming. Almost any waste stream. We, we really try to avoid elemental contaminants like mercury or arsenic. But besides that, if there's a meaningful amount of CO2 in the, in the gas waste stream, it's probably something that we can use. We're quite interested in carbon dioxide that's emitted by the cement industry, steel, pulp and paper, uh, bioethanol, and oil and gas. The um, concrete industry, interesting you should mention that, that is something like, I think, 8% of greenhouse gas emissions comes from making concrete. Absolutely. It's, it's billions of tons a year. It's roughly one-to-one. -one. If you make a million tons of concrete, you're going to make a million tons of CO2. If you make a ton of concrete, you're going to, or uh, cement, I should say, you're going to make a million tons of uh, CO2. So we had an opportunity to run a two-year uh, field lab trial with Lehigh Cement, which is owned by Heidelberg, uh, right up the street here in California in Cupertino, um, where we were taking the CO2 that would normally have just gone right up the flue stack and into the air, um, and we piped it into the shipping container uh, that where we housed our mobile lab and, and right into our bioreactor, where our microbes ate it up and and reproduced, uh, which is our goal. And the hydrogen, where do you get the hydrogen from to power the bacteria? So in our lab today, we make the hydrogen through electrolysis. So we have a washing machine sized piece of equipment called an electrolyzer. And it's very similar to you know what you would have done in chemistry class when you were 14, um, when you apply electricity to water and it uh, splits the hydrogen portion of the molecule from the oxygen. This is a convenient way to do it at small scale, but today it would be too expensive to produce mass quantities of hydrogen this way, although that may change in the future. And so 
basically um, the main way of producing hydrogen uh, commercially is it that it's essentially a byproduct of the natural gas industry. Over time, that biogas is going to emerge, and so there should be greener forms of methane that are available to, to produce hydrogen from. And I think also there's been some talk about hydrogen-powered cars, which is going to lead to an increase in availability of hydrogen too. That's right. The, the hydrogen economy is something that's absorbed billions of dollars of investment from governments and private companies. And so it's an increasingly suitable place for startup companies to, to play because you know we can find access to those resources. And the same way that we don't require pure carbon dioxide, we also don't require pure hydrogen. And so many of the hydrogen sources we're looking at are also dirty sources. Um, so for example, in a number of um, municipalities around the world, uh, I'd say notably in Japan, they're gasifying municipal solid waste, which means that they are burning stuff that would otherwise go to landfill in a, in a very special way to try to produce a relatively clean and specialized set of gases. And those happen to be gases that, uh, that we can use. That's a source of hydrogen for us. And so we envision a future where we may be turning industrial emissions from a cement plant and trash that's coming from a nearby city into the protein that you know goes back to feed that city. Wow, and that's really good because you're closing the loop, as it were, on all these waste products, but you're also closing the loop on what's being manufactured in the way of cement to actually grow the economy and grow cities. Exactly. We've, we're a strong believer in the circular economy, and we're also focused on getting uh, free energy, which is to say either solar energy, wind power, there's a cost in, in, in turning that into electricity, but in the future as, um, as those technologies improve and as electrolysis improves, we should have a route from clean energy to protein, um, which is, will be a pretty remarkable thing. And really at that point, society will have achieved a way to make food without agriculture and to make food without fossil fuels. And so that's that's part of the big vision, um, but we recognize we have to start with um, what's actually feasible today. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's, that's a great long-term goal, I suppose, if it comes down to it. That's your vision of the, the future of food, isn't it? I mean, I look, I look forward to continuing to eat, you know, corn on the cob and uh, maybe even an occasional uh, wild fish. But I think that more and more, of the food system will come from alternative sources and a lot of it will come directly or indirectly from microbial production. Well, as a microbiologist, I can't help but agree with you. <laughs> and looking at the cost of this sort of system compared to say traditional sugar fermentation processes, how does it compare cost-wise? We're still at the lab scale, but our projections are pretty favorable. So a lot of the technologies are actually quite similar. And so the differences are more um, on the OPEX side, so, and particularly with um, the feedstock costs. And so uh, given that sugar is a commodity with a real price and has a lot of value both as a, you know, as a food or in other settings um, as a feedstock for classic fermentation, being able to get CO2 for near zero, being able to get hydrogen for less than a dollar a kilo, or perhaps from a waste stream source, it's um, significantly better than uh, than sugar. And then uh, there are also some advantages that you get from the specific bacteria that one might choose to run on gas in terms of growth rates or the fact that they're not going to form inclusion bodies and a number of 
technical reasons why that should also reduce your cost of production. And so for producing bulk products, it's, uh, it's difficult to beat gas fermentation on cost. And I think if we look at the, the demand for sugar, it's only going to go up as the years go by, as the population increases. So anything you can do not to have to compete in that market and then drive more land usage and so on has to be an advantage in the whole system too. It is. You know, I, we spend a lot of time thinking about inputs and waste streams, especially as inputs. And what we've seen is that there are actually a number of marketplaces for waste that are forming now. And so I anticipate that in, in the next few years, there will be efficient markets that match waste streams that one industry produces with customers, users for that waste stream potentially in another industry. And what that will do is valorize these wastes, increase competition for those wastes, increase the prices of those wastes for those who, who want to use them as inputs for another process. And so this is all the more reason when you're thinking about production to try to find a feedstock that is um, oversized, billions of tons a year would be a great scale, and where there is today not a lot of competition to use it and not a lot of prospects for um, for other use. That is the recipe for long-term low-cost feedstocks, and we think is, uh, is one of the reasons why CO2, which we use five times more of than we use hydrogen, is a great one going forward and one where the cost should start low, stay low. And who knows, given uh, some of the tax credits and carbon trading uh, systems that have either been implemented or are being discussed in different parts of the world, there may even be jurisdictions where it's especially favorable to use CO2 and, and where you're paid to take it. And looking at that too, I mean, there's a huge environmental advantage in sequestering, getting rid of that CO2 and turning it into something useful. We have people talking about sequestering it or stopping it up and then burying it. But you're saying, no, let's actually take that CO2 and turn it into something useful instead of being something harmful. And this movement is, has a name, at least out here in Silicon Valley, they're calling it carbon tech. If you can take waste carbon dioxide and turn it into a valuable product, that's carbon tech. And in our view, the most successful carbon tech so far has been some companies that are a few years ahead of us in, uh, in terms of development uh, who are making concrete. And they're making concrete in such a way that it produces less CO2, but also they're curing it with CO2. So a ton of concrete is absorbing hundreds of pounds of CO2 into itself. And then it'll keep it there for the life of the concrete, which could be several thousand years, judging from you know what we still have left from Roman times. So I'm very excited from a carbon tech perspective about uh, those folks. And of course, I'm excited about what we're doing. We give a second life to carbon dioxide. For every 2 million tons of carbon dioxide that we uh, absorb, we can produce a million tons of dry weight protein meal. And when you put that in real world terms, we haven't talked about you know, how big cement plants can be. Yeah, I happen to be familiar with the cement industry in Nigeria. There, there are four giant cement plants. They average uh, a production of cement and therefore CO2 of 4 million tons a year each. So together, 16 million tons of CO2 emitted. And uh, it happens to be exactly that amount that we would need if we wanted to replace all the fish that are caught every year just to put into animal feed. So it's 20 million tons a year of fish, about, probably about 400 billion fish every year caught just for feed purposes. And those 20 million tons of fish could be replaced um, with 16 million tons of CO2 
which is very exciting, just for cement plants. Just for cement plants. Now, let's move on to what is the product that you guys are producing? I believe it's called Nova Meal. Is that correct? That's right, Nova Meal. So in order to understand the product, you have to understand, I think, the customers first and what they're going to do with it. And so our customers are the folks who make feed. So these are usually companies that specialize in exactly this activity of feed milling. And they buy a lot of different ingredients from commodity markets. They'll you know, buy wheat and corn and soybeans, and they may buy things like poultry byproduct meal, and then they will also buy vegetable oils and, and fish meal. And fish meal is the special one that's of particular interest to us. I just referred to the 20 million tons a year of fish that we catch to feed uh, to other animals, and the way that those fish become feed for other animals is after they're caught, they get ground up and pressed out into a protein a product called fish meal. It's a feed ingredient and an oil fat product called fish oil. Um, and that is about 5 million tons of your fish meal and about a million tons of your fish oil. And so, and that's really sort of the king of ingredients in aquaculture feeds and, and frankly in poultry and swine feeds as well. It just is, it's a remarkably good protein ingredient because it has crude protein levels between you know, the low 60s and the mid 70s in, per, in uh, percent terms, a remarkable amino acid profile that contains essential amino acids for uh, fish and humans. And um, the problem is we can't catch any more fish uh, than we already do in this regard. And so the price of this fish meal has gone up by a factor of five or six times in the last three decades. And so that's what has set up, you know, an immediate market for, for our Novo meal is the fact that if we can produce something of equivalent nutritional value, which we believe that we have, then it can be, um, and if we can do it at a lower cost than fish meal, then we should be able to sell the capacity uh, of our first factory. And um, you know that's something that we're, all, we're working to do. Um, so yeah, the product is a protein meal. It's an ingredient to go in formulated feeds for aquaculture uh, and other animal nutrition. The interesting thing is that with the aquaculture industry is the problem is there's not enough fish in the sea. And it's interesting that that's a problem that needs to be addressed. Whereas if you look at something like clean meat, it says too many cattle in the world. So we've got the opposite ends of the spectrum, but people looking at um, solving that problem sometimes in similar ways. That's right. And, and I think when you think about cattle and fish, the biggest difference is, is efficiency. The feed conversion rate, the number of pounds of feed it takes to produce one pound of cattle is a, a 10 or 12. And for a well-managed salmon farm in Canada, it's 0.85. Um, so it's, it's a dramatic difference in how we're using the world's resources, which means how we're using arable land, water for irrigation, fertilizers, pesticides, insecticides, like all the things that are part of um, agriculture and that are limited or should be limited are so much more heavily used in producing beef. And so aquaculture is the fastest growing part of the world food system. I should say major part of the world food system. Let's say it's growing at 8% uh, compounding year after year or something like that. The global catch of these pelagic fish that get turned into fish meal and fish oil has been declining actually and, and is now flattening out a bit. So there's a huge gap that's forming, which will be three or four million tons in uh, in, in just 20 years. That's a lot of um, lot of capacity required, a lot of opportunity for you guys. And I think 
from memory, I heard you guys at Indie Bio last month, and you use substantially less land than compared to, say, soybeans. Is that right? About a thousand, factor of a thousand less land area required? That's right. That's right. When we when we calculated how much protein we would produce in uh, a plant that was producing 200,000 tons a year of our Novo meal, and did the similar calculation for conventional soybean farming, whereas our plant might take 40 acres. It was about 40,000 acres of, uh, of soybeans to produce the same amount of protein. That's a huge difference, isn't it? It really is. And qualitatively, the type of land we use is very different. We can use any old piece of land. It could be land which has almost no economic value, whereas to produce soybeans, you need good arable land with access to water for irrigation and all kinds of other quality. So it's a, if you were to look at the value of the land, it would be many, many times more than a, than a thousand-fold difference. I think that's right. I mean, that's what I was thinking in my mind, too. People think that there's so much land available on Earth, but not good quality arable land. We're running out of that at a great rate. And with the change in the climate, a lot of the areas that even are arable at this point in time may not be in 30 or 40 years' time. Yeah, that's that's something I think about a lot. And it's also what you know, led me to my, you know, previous career investing in aquaculture was the recognition that we had many times more acreage and volume of water to raise food in than we did land. And that's why I think there's a quite a powerful future, not just in microbes, but in seaweeds and, um, and also in uh, fish and shrimp that are fed microbes. If we just go back a step to the process that you guys are using, it's not just simply growing a single type of bacteria or microbe. You're actually growing a microbial consortium of organisms. Yes. So really the crown jewel in our intellectual property development so far has been this framework for designing architectures of microbes. So it's really a form of biomimicry. In nature, it's extremely rare to see a single microbe growing by itself. In practice, what you see are these consortia, so uh, different kinds of microbes that have evolved alongside each other or found each other, and they exist in such a way as to extract the maximum amount of energy from the environment. There will be some that are eating one substance, others that are eating another, the waste products from a third become inputs for a fourth, and this is an, is a, an efficiency that's evolved in nature, but it's also one that we can design for our own purposes. And so, you know, we started by looking at what are the microbes that thrive on CO2 and hydrogen. And then we considered, well, what are the other microbes that we can include, which couldn't survive off of CO2 and hydrogen on their own, but can do very well in an environment where those core microbes, those workhorses that uh, take from hydrogen um, are producing a variety of metabolites um, that become the, the inputs for these secondary producers. And, and so that gives a modularity and configurability to our products that we couldn't achieve with a monoculture and that we couldn't achieve without genetic engineering. So we can have a natural consortium product that you know, could be as, as valuable as a GMO product. So you can basically, to a certain extent, tailor the product output depending upon what microbes you have in that uh, consortia. That's right. It's a, it's a relatively crude tailoring, but we think a meaningful one. Our, our basic prototype uses 13 types of bacteria, but 
our framework allows for removing some, adding others, having a consortium which has a, a different number of bacteria in total, and also including members in the consortium that are non-bacterial. Uh, our framework allows for certain types of yeast and microalgae and other microbes as well. And so that gives it a lot of breadth um, as well as, uh, as, as our ability to tinker with it to get more of one amino acid or more of one vitamin um, or it really adjust any of the things that are naturally occurring in the variety of microbes that we have access to in our arsenal. And so where are you at the moment in terms of your timeline towards commercialization? We see our commercialization as, as going after three markets in sequence. So initially, we're going to want to go after the low volume markets, then medium volume, and finally high volume. And at the same time, you know, really the prices associated with those markets move in the opposite direction. So the lowest volume markets will have the highest prices for protein meals. And so when I say low volume, high price market, I'm talking about the hobbyist market. So the folks who raise koi or who make feeds for, for koi, uh, backyard aquaculture. There are a lot of folks who are raising fish the same way that other people are raising chickens uh, around the home. And so that's a good place to start because it matches what our production capacity is likely to be next year. So it's a way to get started to really engage with, with customers and, and deliver value, start building a name for, for our product. And then as we get larger, then we can go after uh, a bigger market. And that would be specialty aquaculture feed makers, um, in all likelihood, the folks who are making feeds for juvenile fish. So there are companies, that's all they do. They, they don't think about adult fish. They think about fish when they're at their smallest, most delicate, and most nutritionally demanding stage. And, uh, and that for us, that's a good midsize market with um, sort of mid-value uh, willingness to pay. And then finally, you end up at the, at the biggest markets of all. These are the world's largest feed companies and large integrated farmers, um, whether it's a you know, shrimp farm in Thailand or a, a swine uh, farm in China. So by the time we get there, it's really the early middle part of the next decade. So we're planning pretty far ahead, but changes like this take time and scaling up to the to the ambitious sizes that we have in mind is something that you don't do in a single leap. Uh, you really need to take three steps to get there. If I'm right, would be a fairly capital intensive type of industry as well. It's not something you can do on the cheap. That's correct. I mean, you're putting a lot of steel in the ground and uh, there's a lot of sophisticated uh, technology that's you know coming out of other parts of the food system or the feed ingredient sector that, that has to be put into play. But the good news is that there are a lot of large companies that are looking for these types of solutions. It's been clear for a while that there needed to be lower cost, higher performance protein ingredients. And we get inquiries several times a week from companies who have recognized that perhaps we have something. And so what we see in other areas of gas fermentation are partnerships between larger companies and smaller innovative technology companies. So Lonza Tech is a good example of this. They are a group that takes primarily carbon monoxide and uh, ferments it into uh, ethanol. And they've teamed up with big players in steel and 
uh, other industries in China and India and Belgium. And this is a way where they can deploy their technology without taking the responsibility for the full capital expenditure. And in fact, you know, allowing the full capital expenditure or the majority of it to be made by uh, their partners. And this is the likely model for us as well. And uh, it makes sense. It means that we can focus on developing the technology and we can leave the, the manufacturing to the folks who've done it before. What you're saying there is basically they do what they do well, you do what you do well, put the two things together and you get the output and you spread the risk as well. Exactly. I'm a strong believer in uh, specialization of labor. And uh, we know that our, sport, our specialization is the technology. And, and our talents in technology you know, go beyond uh, the consortium. When I brought up GMO earlier, it was not because I'm anti-GMO. It's just because I recognize that there are different markets. In Canada, they are generally very happy to have GMO feed ingredients to go into their salmon sector. In Europe, not so. And so in recognition of this and in thinking about, you know, how can we make the best and most valuable products, some of which will be natural and some of which um, will be engineered, about half of our science and technology team are synthetic biologists. So folks who are thinking about how do we alter the genomes of these, uh, some of the microbes that we're using to produce in them some of the special things that really benefit uh, fish when they eat them. So certain enzymes, vitamins, and uh, carotenoids like astaxanthin, which is a, one of the very best antioxidants and a real enhancement of fish health and growth. And of course, what gives uh, shrimp and uh, salmon their color. That's a very interesting one. And you can tailor, as you say, some of these things by looking at the type of microbes that you use and potentially by some genetic modification or editing to get an output of a product that could be ideally targeted for specific areas of the aquaculture industry or feed industry. Exactly. So perhaps someday we'll make a, a GMO protein meal that's specifically targeted for shrimp and sell that in Indonesia. And at the same time, you know, we're making a natural protein meal as a finishing diet for salmon above the Arctic Circle in Norway. Definitely got a very, very interesting process, David. And when I was there at IndieBio, when, when I looked at the four presentations, which were all great, for sheer technology, you guys certainly took the prize for me in being able to take something that is a, a relatively dangerous waste product in CO2, hydrogen, which is fairly well harmless. But look, looking at those two components and then using basically only those just to make a high protein product. I thought that was absolutely fantastic going from inorganic almost ingredients through to finished protein was a real winner to me. I'm glad that you share uh, my feelings about it. Um, I am obligated to point out that we, we do require oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, potassium, and a few other things, but at in amounts and costs that are really dwarfed by um, the benefit of our getting to use CO2 and hydrogen as the main feedstocks. So as you say, there are certainly other things. You can't just do it all on that. Using up all that CO2, I think that's got to be a major advantage. And companies that are looking at getting credit for doing something about their CO2 emissions, partnering with you guys makes a lot of sense because they can dramatically reduce their CO2 emission and that's going to look very good on their annual reports. It is, and it's a way to take greenhouse gases that 
you know, are ruining our climate and put them into one of the most essential supports for, uh, you know, human life and happiness, which is food and, and protein. So we are eager to capture millions of tons of CO2 and, and produce millions of tons of protein. Fascinating stuff there and wish you all the best in the commercialization and in getting that product to market, even though it might be 10 years. I tell you what, 10 years will disappear in the blink of an eye. <laughs> let's uh, let's hope we get to enjoy ourselves along the way. Um, but yeah, the future is not as far away as, as we fear. And a lot of good things are going to come with folks who are working hard on innovation uh, all over the world. Um, and I'm just happy that so many of them are here in Northern California and, uh, and that a few of them are working with me on Nova Nutrients. Uh, absolutely, David. Great stuff to hear. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you again next time I'm over in the States. Or if you get down here, we'll uh, share a few shrimp on the barbie. All right, Tony, we'll do it. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. And join me next time for more exciting insights into the future of food.